Those of you who I haven't met before, I'm Scott Pontier, one of the pastors here. Uh, and for those of you who don't know me really, really well, I'm also like a super, like, I love organization. I love things to be in the right place. I believe there is a right place for most things. Um, you know how you like organize, like clean out and organize your garage like once every year after the winter or something like that? I do it every weekend. Every single weekend. This place that you're in right now, there is a right place for every single cable and cord behind that, that, that curtain. It's just the way I function. Uh, and so if you've been around here for a while, we've been, we've been talking about the book of Genesis together ever since January. And today we're actually in the, the final chapters of Genesis. And when I read through Genesis, I sort of ask a question like, well, if this is a, a book of foundational stories, if this is God's foundation for his people that sets them up with the right ways to live, the right ways to interact, the right ways to be, why do we need the rest of the Bible? What's the point of this whole thing if we all figured it out in Genesis? Uh, and then I start to realize, well, because things are still broken, Things are, are, are still in places they shouldn't be. It still isn't kind of working the way God set it out to be. In fact, as you read through Genesis, you see that God sort of reorganizes the garage a couple of different times, doesn't he? You know, he starts out with Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and, and eventually that just doesn't pan out the way he designed. So he has this flood and Noah, and that doesn't kind of like work exactly the way we wanted to. And so then we get this family Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, 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 and that doesn't exactly pan out in the same, in the way it should be, and that eventually turns into this nation, and eventually, 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 we get to Jesus on the cross, we just sang about this salvation we have through him, it just sort of feels like God's like reorganizing the garage, often. And so it, it raises all these questions for us today. Right? Like, if this is supposed to be the answer to all the problems, if this is supposed to be God putting things right, why do we still have brokenness today? What is the point of, of, our, of the brokenness that shows up in our lives today? Why do good, bad things happen to good people? Why does goodness not always get goodness in return? Why, why does brokenness still shape so much of our lives? Broken homes, broken families, broken marriages, broken self-identities, broken hearts. So the question I'm asking as we close the book of Genesis together is, how are we supposed to move forward if that is our reality? How are we supposed to continue to live into the God of the promise, to continue to live into the salvation of the cross if our reality is still so shaped by brokenness? And as I've often said about the Bible, one of the things I love about the text is, is that uh, most of the Bible is filled with stories of people just like you and me people who find themselves in the same places we find ourselves, people who ask the same kinds of questions that we ask. So when I ask the question about like, how are we, what is the way forward in, our, in a world shaped by brokenness? We're not the only ones to ask that question. I think, I think stories of Joseph that we're gonna look at today is very, very similar. 
In fact, I think the story of Joseph that we're going to look at today sets the stage for what a way forward it is for him and for the people of God to live as people of God in a world shaped by brokenness. And I say that because the last chapters of Genesis chapter 49 and 40 and chapter 50, it sort of caps off all of these broken stories of Joseph and his father, of Joseph and his brothers who sold him into slavery, uh, of, of uh, Jacob and Esau, his father and his uncle, of Isaac and Ishmael, of all of these stories that like continue to show brokenness. This, these chapters cap that off, but they don't fix it. It, it carries into the real lives of God's people to this day. And I think these stories remind them of what they're going to need as they move forward into a world shaped by brokenness. And so that's kind of our, our, our job today as we read this story. First, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through this story at the end of Genesis uh, together. We're just going to read through it and note a couple of things as we read through it. Uh, And then after that, I just want to look at four observations we make on that we take from that, that these stories on the nature of what it means to move forward when our lives are shaped by brokenness. So we're going to read through the story and then we're going to make four observations together. So that's our plan for today. And we're just going to start with the end of Genesis chapter 49. The beginning of it is these blessings that are made to all of uh, Jacob's children and offspring. And then we get to the story at the end of 49, which is the death of Jacob, Joseph's father. Then he gave them these instructions, Jacob that is. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim the Hittite the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. There I I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob had finished giving the instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So this is sort of the last thing that Jacob says to his his kids. I know we are in Egypt. We came here to escape the famine. We found uh, my, my son Joseph, whom I love. We're all like together in this place. But when I die, you need to take me back to my homeland, back to the cave that my grandfather bought, Abraham, Isaac, Jake. This is where I'm supposed to be. Will you take me back there? And part of this instruction, I think, is, is him hoping that despite the brokenness between himself and his son Joseph, that Joseph still might identify as a Hebrew, as part of that family, instead of part of the Egyptian family he's begun here in this new, new place. Does Joseph still honor the heritage uh, of our same God? And so that's partly why I think he kind of throws, makes that such a big deal in that moment. And then the story continues. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me, 
Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen, this place they settled in Egypt. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they had reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this, uh, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why this, the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's son did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. So that's the story of Jacob's burial. We have a few verses of his death and the promise that he swore, he made his kids swear to him. And then we have this whole story about the funeral. Now, Jacob was the father of Joseph, but to put this in context even more, he was the father of the man who saved the world. Right? Joseph had ensured that Egypt would store up all of its grain in preparation for this great famine. And Egypt became this blessing to all these peoples throughout the world and saved countless lives. Joseph was a hero. Joseph was Egyptian royalty and Jacob was his father. And so the story tells us that Jacob, when he dies is embalmed like Egyptian royalty, the full 40 days. His funeral is this Egyptian state funeral with chariots and officials and horsemen. All of these people go to Canaan outside of Egypt. And even the people who live there, the neighbors in the neighboring countries, look on this this procession and this, this morning celebration here, and they're commenting on it. They're like, look at this, an Egyptian state funeral outside of Egypt. It's a big deal. One Bible commentary noted that there is no burial recorded in scripture quite as honorable as this one or with such wealth of detail. But amidst all of this Egyptian, right? This whole story just screams of Egyptian state funeral. Amidst all of that Egyptian culture, the core of this story is that the son fulfills the father's request. The son takes him back to his father's land. He honors his father. Despite the brokenness, despite the isolation between the father and the son, this relationship with his father has been reconciled. 
It looks like it didn't have to be. Like he could have gone on and, and, and just completely identified as Egyptian, but he honors the Hebrew heritage of his father and in himself. And so at this moment, if you're kind of tracking with that story, like that feels good, right? The big tension in the text that lies underneath all of this is, okay, well, he found some reconciliation with the brokenness with his dad. What about his brothers? That is the question. If you're reading and tracking this story as a Hebrew thinker, you're going, oh, wow, that's great. Dad and Joseph, will that reconciliation happen with his brothers who did such pain and harm to him? So we'll continue. Now we're in chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers, now we switch to the brothers. When his brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. So the brothers are not dumb, right? They know that while dad was alive and they were working on their relationship together and reconciling this relationship together, Joseph would not dishonor the family by by hurting them. But they did terrible things to Joseph. They assaulted him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him as a slave. Joseph is owed and is right to mistreat them in return, and they totally know it. While dad was alive, we have some protection. But as soon as he dies, that's gone. We're in trouble. So they decide they're going to head the punishment off at the pass, right? By freely acknowledging all the evil which they did. And so interestingly, I think what they're worried about isn't what their brother felt about them. They're not going, Joseph, will you be our friend again? Will we be pals again? In fact, they weren't necessarily caring about the relationship with them. I think what they were worried about was justice, was righteousness, right? They feared a righteous retribution, They knew what they were owed. And Joseph, with his high status as royalty in Egypt, was capable of bringing that to them with just a snap of his fingers. And so, interestingly, you could probably understand that the story they told Joseph about their father was probably made up. That dad probably didn't say those things. Because they didn't feel like they had a a right to ask for forgiveness. So they put those words in dad's mouth. You know, Joseph, before dad died, he said, you should forgive us, right? They didn't feel like they could ask because they've sinned so greatly. And so they put the the request for mercy in their father's mouth, hoped for the best. Chapter or verse 19, it continues. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So great. 
Jacob dies. We get the sense that their relationship is put back together. And now the, now the, now the brothers are all back together. One family, one happy family. He forgave them. It's all good. Except it doesn't actually say he forgave them. Does it? It doesn't actually say Joseph forgave them and their relationship was put back together. It does say that he reassured them. It does say that he was nice to them. He was kind to them. But really his entire response isn't about him. It's about God. Am I in the place of God? Here's what God did with what you did, right? Interestingly, the the idea of forgiveness in the Bible uh, comes from a Hebrew word uh, conveying like an actual physical action of lifting up or taking off. And it's used kind of in this context of taking up a weight off of someone's shoulders. And so when the brothers are asking for forgiveness from Joseph, they're saying, will you take the guilt off of us? We feel terrible about what has happened. Can you just like, Make it so we don't feel that way anymore. So while at this point, it doesn't seem clear that he's restoring their relationship together, it does seem clear that he's trying to address the weight that they feel. And basically saying, it's not me that you need to be forgiven by. It's God. And I'm not God. So this guilt you feel, it's actually not about me. That's between you and God. I'm not in that place. So he kind of just throws the question back to them. Since this business of forgiveness is really between you and God. So he kind of lifts that a little bit while also pointing them back towards God. And then the story goes on. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived to 110 and saw the third generation of his son Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land and to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph stays in Egypt. His brothers and their families stay in Egypt. He lives long enough to see his great-grandchildren there. And as he's about to die, he, he, he talks to his brothers. And he says, surely God will come to your aid. And then after he talks to his brothers, the text tells us he talks to the Israelites, which I think is the first time they are identified as Israelites in the Bible. And he tells them the same thing he told his brothers. Surely God will come to your aid. In fact, in doing so, he sort of predicts what's about to come over the next 400 years. He predicts the end of Egyptian slavery, that 400 years from now, God will lead you out of slavery in Egypt and bring you to the promised land. Now, Joseph, interestingly, was the person most responsible for them being uh, in Egypt, yet he knew that the covenant that God had made with his forefathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this would not be their resting place, that they were headed 
to the promised land. And then the text tells us he was put into a coffin. He wasn't buried in the cave, right, with his dad. According to this passage and according to Hebrews 11, Joseph was actually never buried. His coffin laid above ground where his bones settled in it for 400 years until it was taken back to Canaan. It was this silent like reminder for all these years that they were going back to the promised land, just as God said. And that's the story. That's the end of how uh, Genesis closes up. It kind of starts with Jacob's death. It ends with Joseph's death as bookends. And throughout the entire story, it almost is exclusively dealing with broken human relationships. Broken relationships that we've been reading out for chapter after chapter. So now that we've kind of seen that and we see how that brokenness is dealt with a little bit, but still carries forward, I just want to talk about four things that stand out to me here. The first thing I want to talk about uh, is, is, is about suffering, right? When, when we talk about the, 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 the kind of pain and reconciliation of these relationships, uh, what does it mean for God's people to move forward with, these bro- with this brokenness? Uh, Joseph's suffering in the story, mirrors the whole nation's suffering. Not only does his story kind of tell the story of how his people got to Egypt and how they got out, eventually became who they are, but it mirrors the journey that they'll take through suffering. Suffering in Egypt, suffering in Assyria, suffering in Babylon. You can read his story and read into it the feelings of a nation of people who deal with suffering. Our father has abandoned us. We are thrown into a pit. We might never get out of this this painful suffering place. We have been removed from our homeland. Their story is just all this suffering. But in the midst of suffering, Joseph names to his brothers the single perspective that allows him to continue moving forward. One of the most important lines that Joseph states is that God meant for good what they meant for evil. What God, what they did, the suffering that they experienced, God actually meant for good. That's what he names. That's the perspective he injects into the story. The apostle Paul talks about it as well in Romans, uh, where he says this really famous verse in Romans 8, perhaps you've heard it before, uh, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, I think this isn't just like a really comfortable verse that Paul is saying. I think both Paul and Joseph identify something about suffering and that it is unavoidable, that it is part of our existence that in suffering is in all things. It's woven throughout our experience and will always be so. And the word that Joseph uses, this word intended, what you intended, God intended, right? He uses this word intended. And the root of the kind of Hebrew original language word for that one comes out of this concrete meaning of to weave, like to weave together a blanket or a rug or a piece of clothing. 
parts of yarn or thread pulled together to create a much broader piece of creation. And so I think Joseph's perspective here on suffering is such that you can get caught up in the thread. I could get caught up in the thread of what you did to me that day, back when I came out and told you about my dreams and you threw me in a pit. I could get caught up on the thread of uh, the days where I was put in charge of the governor's household and his wife uh, tried to have an affair with me. And even though I held my ground, I got thrown into prison. I could, I could hold on to that thread. But Joseph doesn't just see a thread here or there. Joseph can move forward in the midst of suffering because he's looking beyond the suffering. He's asking questions about how does this thread work into what God is doing as a whole. And so Joseph acknowledges that the brothers have done him wrong but he also says God sees something else in that thread. And so one of the ways forward God's people have in the midst of suffering is that they are going to require a much larger perspective to look beyond the moment of suffering. So that's the first one, suffering. The second observation comes from the brothers. So let's think on their guilt, right? Because they are clearly very guilty in this story. The brothers frame like their kind of petition to Joseph. Just, we're just telling you what our dad said. Forgive your brothers, right? But we don't know that, Joseph, that Jacob actually issued those uh, instructions. In fact, I doubt it. We don't know, in fact, whether uh, Jacob had ever really known what the brothers had done to Joseph, we can't be sure that he ever learned how Jacob or Joseph actually ended up in Egypt. So whether or not these, 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 these brothers are lying or not, their words are betraying guilt. They have a lingering guilt. They are worried because they know they've done something. They, in fact, don't even appeal to Joseph as a brother or for that matter, even like sons of the same father. Their appeal to him is like, we are both servants of the same God. That's what he says. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. So what's interesting to me about that is that the awareness of their guilt has fundamentally changed how they view the relationship. Because they don't view it as we're brothers. They don't view it as we both have the same father right? Uh, Their guilt fundamentally changes the way they view their family relationships. It fundamentally changes the relationship themselves. Guilt will fundamentally change relationships. If it's not dealt with, it will always draw a wedge. And so this whole story is stories of this reconciliation, but the nature of guilt is so insidious that it will ruin marriages. It will ruin families. It will destroy nations if it's left unaddressed. I mean, maybe you've experienced that. Maybe the longer you've kept a secret, the more your relationship was harmed. I mean, maybe you think I'm going to save them the pain of hearing what I actually did to them. But what you don't realize is it's changing how you view them, how you interact with them. That guilt, it stays in between you. And I think when it comes to the brokenness in our world, God wants his people to learn that this is true 
between people, but it's also true between us and him. It's why he constantly invites us to confession, to confess our sins to him, because the way forward requires confession and the removal of guilt out of relationships. So suffering is always going to be with us, but the way forward is going to be a perspective that's much larger than the single thread of pain. And then guilt is also going to be part of our relationships between each other and between us and the Lord. But dealing with it, confessing that is going to be our way forward. And then so my third observation is on forgiveness and justice in particular. These two things are really intertwined. We've actually talked about forgiveness a lot throughout the Genesis series already because people keep doing things to each other in the story. They keep hurting each other. But it's still important for God's people to reckon with because Joseph demonstrates something about forgiveness here that is simply that it is an incredible act of trust. To allow yourself to forgive someone is a, is a moment where you're letting go of some control, letting go of the need for justice to happen to them because of what happened to you. They did something hurtful, so they should be hurt in response. But to forgive, to let go, requires trust that God's going to deal with it and that you don't have to. He says, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm not God. I am not in the place of God. From a human perspective, I have the right and the ability to bring retribution and justice on you. But God is God and I am not. And justice is his to deal with, not mine. His job wasn't to bring retribution on his brothers. If the Lord chose to punish men, then punish them, he's going to deal with that. And I think often the problems we might have in, in loving others and in freeing ourselves from bitterness is really comes down to this problem of, but if I don't make this right, then nobody will. If I don't teach them that's not how you treat people, then they're just going to keep doing it. If I don't uh, get justice here, then it'll never happen. And it's this problem of knowing who God is and trusting him to be who he says he is. So the way forward for God's people in the midst of brokenness is to remember who God is and to trust that he's going to be who he says he is. So that's the third one. And then the, for the, finally, for the fourth one, let's think on freedom for a moment. Why did Joseph not have his bones buried with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Instead, he's got his bones resting in a box for everyone to kind of walk by. Instead of the cave of the patriarchs in Mamre. I mean, that's odd to me because they made it such a big deal. Like Jacob was so insistent on it. It was such a big deal to him. Like, hey, listen, if you're going to honor our, our, our family legacy, this is where we get buried. And we start the story with this reconciliation with his dad. We thought they were on the same page. And yet he explicitly stays in Egypt. As long as they are in Egypt, he stays there. On display in this coffin, that reminds him of the promise. God will surely come to your aid. And then you can carry my bones to the place. 
Now, I don't know if this is Joseph with like some premonition of, or future knowledge. Clearly, he's had dreams in the past that kind of indicate what might happen. I don't know if this is just the author of Genesis taking some liberties to, to set up as a precursor for what happens between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus and their, their, their enslavement. But I do know that the text chose to tie Joseph and his death directly to the liberation of God's people from Egypt. Amidst all the guilt, amidst all the suffering, all the brokenness of these people and their relationship, in his death, Joseph still points them towards wholeness. He still points them towards reconciliation. He does it with his dad. He does it with his brothers. And he, then he reminds them, as I die, no matter how long it's going to be, God will surely come to your aid. God will surely recognize you. As long as my bones are here, my coffin will stay here as long as it takes for freedom to come. My bones will not rest until these people are free. That's kind of what he's saying. Together in the place that God promised us. And so it seems like Joseph is giving one final lesson to God's people who live in the midst of brokenness. That God's playing the long game, much longer than you or I can kind of comprehend. And he wanted his life to be part of a legacy that comes after him. And I got to confess that that's not how I live, right? Often my uh, way through a problem or suffering or pain is what gets me the short-term relief. Can I just hide my guilt and not deal with the pain of my own problems? Can I just move away from the brokenness and like ignore it and pretend it's not there? But God's people need to know that God is always, always, always moving them towards freedom. He's always playing the long game. He's always moving us towards reconciliation and towards wholeness, even if in the moment it doesn't feel that way. Even if in the moment it feels like, but I'm dying in Egypt. This ends this book that is the stories of the beginnings of God's people. And in fact, this kind of iteration, this this. A uh, week of God organizing the garage started way back in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verse 3, where God makes a promise to Abraham, who at this point is the only Hebrew. It's just Abraham. And he says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I am moving everyone towards freedom and wholeness. And all throughout these stories, God is forming these people. He is shaping them. He is moving them closer to that moment. And here at the end of the book, there is still so much for them to learn as his people. And they must wrestle with the reality that suffering will always be with them. But the way forward is to have a much larger perspective on pain. And they must learn, they must wrestle with the fact that guilt will forever alter their relationships with each other and with him. But the way forward is confession and bringing it into the light together. And here at the end, they must learn and wrestle uh, that forgiveness and justice require an incredible act of trust. And that the way forward is to let God be God and trust him to be who he said he's going to be. 
And they must learn that God is always going to be moving them towards freedom. And that his people can do that too. That the way forward is that we don't let our bones rest until all people on earth are blessed through God's people. When I look through the book of Genesis as we have been for the last nine months, it's all brokenness and it's all reconciliation. All of it. Suffering will be there. Guilt will continue it. Forgiveness is our job. Justice is his job. And he's not going to rest until it all gets put back together. That is the way forward for God's people. That is the way forward for us. So my encouragement for us today as a people who still live in a world and lives shaped by brokenness, that God's moving us towards something more and that how we function in that the promise that God has given Abraham way back in chapter 12. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a, a reminder of who you are and a reminder of who we are, God. We are a people shaped by brokenness. We are people who have been hurt. We are people who will hurt. And yet in the midst of that, God, you do give us a way forward. You do invite us to join you in blessing the world, God. You do not stop until we all are moved towards freedom. And God, we are so grateful for that today. So we humbly ask that we may find ways to confess our guilt, that we may find ways to, to take your, your viewpoint of our suffering. God, that we may trust you instead of ourselves to bring this all towards wholeness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.